Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm Ashley Nasiri, and today we're joined by Dr. Scott Fortune and Dr. Lee Bryant to discuss scribes, advanced practice providers, and clinical workflow. Dr. Fortune and Dr. Bryant, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks, Ashley. Great to be back on the podcast. Thank you very much. Dr. Fortune and Dr. Bryant both practice as a part of a private practice otolaryngology group. In addition to their clinical work, Dr. Fortune is a member of the American Academy of Otolaryngology and Head Neck Surgery, Rhinology, and Allergy Education Committee, and he sits on the Board of Governors Legislative Affairs Committee. Dr. Bryant has served as Chief of Surgery and Chairperson of the Board of Trustees at a regional medical center. Over the last two decades, Dr. Fortune and Dr. Bryant have grown their practice to include scribes and advanced practice providers in an effort to better treat patients and improve their clinical workflow. Today, they have joined us to discuss this topic further and provide practical tips for our listeners who are looking to grow their practice and improve their clinical efficiency. Before we get into the details, Dr. Fortune, can you describe why this topic is important and how does clinical workflow impact the patient and the physician? Well, in order to provide the optimum experience for your patients and the practice, and and that includes the physician and the, the staff that works there, you need to have a system in place that provides efficiency, captures all the important information, but also provides a smooth experience for the patient. And so this topic touches several aspects, including patient care, physician satisfaction, staff impact, and health system impact. So today we'll cover three main topics, um, including options for medical record documentation, incorporation of advanced practice providers, or APPs, as we'll call them on this episode, and additional workflow hacks useful in clinical practice. So let's start with one of the most common causes of physician burnout, medical documentation. As a broad overview, can you review some of the different methods used for documentation? Well, it's kind of interesting. When I got out of residency and started in practice, we were billing allergy shots on index cards and we were still using paper charts and occasionally dictating notes or letters. And since that time, we have gotten on board along with everyone else with electronic records. So we've seen a lot of changes in the way documentation is performed. And I think what bothers physicians the most is the time that's required to actually produce a quality note. And just as a little vignette, something that that happens to me every day that's a a poor decision that I made in in high school that haunts me even now is is my typing skills. So I I made the bad decision to drop my typing class in high school, and I pay the price for that every day when I'm trying to finish my notes. And so if there are systems you can take advantage of where you can dictate or if you might be able to use a scribe, that, that will improve your, your satisfaction in using an electronic medical record and, and help to prevent that burnout, that, um, that overload that we all feel with the requirements for documentation. Some of those requirements are specific to the electronic record. Some are specific to coding and billing uh, requirements, too. And so we don't always have control over all of those issues. I will say, since we have added scribes to our practice, it has really improved our face-to-face time with the patient. And I think if you ask patients if they had one major complaint about electronic record keeping, it would be the fact that a lot of physicians have their face buried in the screen and aren't so much paying attention to the patient. And 
we found that by using scribes, that having that that face-to-face, that eye contact makes a huge difference in the patient's satisfaction. We never actually tried remote scribing. We actually use our nursing staff as the scribe. I think people are interested in remote scribes because they, they may cost less, but in the end, you don't really have control over that situation. And then you can also build into your record keeping, sending out letters to your referring providers so that you make sure that your name and, and your practice or stay in front of those providers so that when they have the need to send out a patient for an otolaryngology consultation, they'll keep you in mind. When you're weighing the costs and benefits of some of these different options for um, essentially keeping medical records, what are some of the things that you think about? Well, I think that whether you're typing into an EMR record or whether you're using voice recognition to enter data into the EMR or whether you use a scribe, there's probably not one correct way to do this, much like say, tonsillectomy in our field, if there was one uh, method or technique that was heads above the rest, we'd all be doing it. So you really have to figure out kind of what works for you in your practice. But I can um, relate sort of my my workflow and the impact on me. Uh, for me, where the EMR uh, combined with a scribe has been beneficial is that I've been able to finish my notes at the point of service versus later in the day trying to dictate lots of notes after hours. And um my personal workflow is such that, you know, our triage is done by our nurse. They do the history of present illness. They'll do the past family medical social history. And then once I've had a chance to review that, I'll begin to examine the patient. Because we have a scribe right there in the room, as I perform the actual physical exam, I'm actually dictating that those uh, uh, findings, and that's being entered into the EMR in real time. And then as I begin to talk to the patient about their various diagnoses, uh, uh, my scribe can be entering the assessment with, a, with those diagnoses into the record. And then lastly, as I'm talking to the patient about the plan, the workup, the risk and benefits of surgery, whatever it may be, uh, my scribe can also be entering much of that plan into the, into the note. So uh, for me, uh, I've been able to finish my notes more, mostly at the point of service, not always. And that's... Uh, uh, made us see just as many patients, but but to leave the office much sooner. As it relates to how many patients that one can see in a day, and then if a scribe will hinder that or will augment that, I think everybody has their own uh, number there that's their sweet spot for how many patients they're comfortably seeing in one day. But but for us, uh, you know, we were able to see just as many patients when we transitioned from paper or dictation to EMR with the help of a scribe, but we were finishing our notes more at the point of service, and therefore we were leaving the office a little bit earlier. I'll refer to one study in 2018 out of Kaiser Permanente, and this is a an article that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, looked at the primary care setting, but they looked at the impact of a medical scribe on physician workflow and patient experience, and what they found was, like we found, was that it resulted in lower physician documentation burden, improved efficiencies, workflow, and increased patient-physician uh, interaction and education. So I think Dr. Bryant covered some really important points there. I would just like to add one thing to what he said. When you hire a scribe, it's not like the first time they walk in the room with you, everything's going to look in your note just like you want it. You're going to need to invest some time and effort in training that scribe, in, in talking the talk that you want 
in your notes. So you'll need to go over with them how to type in, you know, your plan or, or your diagnostic imaging recommendations and so forth and so on. And I would say, you know, a good ballpark, it, it may take, you know, three months or, or if you're really meticulous, it may take a little bit longer to get that system honed to the way you want it to work. But once you have that, it really makes your, your day a lot smoother. And, and like Dr. Bryant said, the end of your day much smoother. I, I think another thing that physicians complain about or that, that contributes to physician burnout with electronic record documentation is the fact that physicians are stuck at the office long after the patients and the staff go home still finishing notes or else taking work home with them. And if you can get your scribe to, to take your thoughts and get them into that note so that, that your finishing touches are all that needed once you walk out of the room. I think that will improve your satisfaction with documentation and use of electronic records tremendously. How does the clinical practice setting, whether you're in a private practice or an academic setting, impact decision-making around how you document medical information? So I think there's one big difference, and I think you can break it down to large institutions or smaller private practices. And I think for, for academic institutions or the larger private practice groups, you're just going to get handed an electronic record and then be taught how to use it. And so you're, you're going to be uh, subject to how that record works. And let's just put out there that, that none of these record keeping systems are perfect. Some are better than others. We've tried a few and, and found out that each have their advantages and disadvantages uh, but in that in that larger setting, you're going to be given one, for example, like Epic. And Epic will have a lot of things built into it, like macros and templates and things like this that help make the documentation easier. But it's a complicated system, and it may take a, a, a bit of time to learn how to use it efficiently. On the other hand, if you're in a private practice, you're, you're going to have much more control over choosing your record-keeping system. And it is worthwhile noting that, that a good electronic medical record is a six-figure investment at minimum, and that's just the, the startup cost. That's just to get the hardware, the servers, the uh, computer support equipment, and then the software. There are typically costs to consider for each provider that uses the system. There are monthly maintenance costs. Sometimes there are update fees, and this is all stuff you'll want to know ahead of time. However, once, once you pick a, a record-keeping system that, that works for your practice and figure out how to use it, it, it does make your day a, a good bit smoother. And the, another important part of these record-keeping systems is the billing and, and practice management software. Some electronic records will have that built in. Others, you'll have to purchase a separate system. And so I, I would recommend, based on our experience, if you can find one where the practice management portion is built into the electronic record, it makes uh, billing and collections a, a much easier endeavor. So the next topic we will cover, which is incorporation of APPs, has seen significant change and growth over the last decade or so. It seems that more and more practices are integrating advanced practice providers, and it would be helpful to kind of delve in a little bit further into this topic. Dr. Bryant, can you first describe which professionals the term APPs include, and second, what their role is in a clinical practice? Sure. Uh, so 
I've had the opportunity to be part of a, a panel at the Academy meeting, the AAO H&A Smitty, in the past, past couple of years. And it was in conjunction with the ASCENT group, the Administrative Support Community for ENT Physicians. And the topic of those panels was how to integrate APPs into your practice. The nomenclature can be quite variable for this broad-based term. Uh, with regard to nurse practitioners, there's PNPs, pediatric nurse practitioners, There's that, that see only children. There are FNPs, family nurse practitioners, which see both adults and kids. There are acute care nurse practitioners. Sometimes they're referred to as APRN, Advanced Practice Registered Nurse. And lastly, there are physician's assistants, but all of these fall under that broad term of advanced practice practitioner. In the past, people may have referred to them as mid-level providers, but that had kind of a negative connotation, and so we've drifted away from that term. And so really how uh, the role that they can they can play in our practice, I'll just describe a situation that both Dr. Fortune and myself were in back in 2006. We were a four-physician uh, practice and in one calendar year, we had one physician retire and one move out of state. So we had this infrastructure set up for four providers, four doctors, but it was just the two of us. So we were overloaded in clinic. Uh, we had lots of work-ins, never ran on time, worked into the lunch hour, worked late in the day. And so, as you know, to recruit a like-minded physician that's going to be with us for the long term, it takes some time. It's a process. So we said, hey, this is, the, this is a great time to try an APP and just see uh, how, what kind of impact it would make on our practice. And so we hired two nurse practitioners to help uh, fill in the gap, and, it's, and we've never looked back. So we've, we found that um, you know, the, the big setting was the clinic setting, that they really could help us out. But also they performed limited procedures. Uh, at, later down the road, we had some, some APPs who assisted us in the OR uh, they can see hospital consults and make hospital rounds and discharge patients. And uh, so there's a wide variety of services they can provide. And it uh, just uh, depends on what the need is in your practice. So I'll add one other way that we've used our APPs that has really benefited the practice, both for the physicians and for the nurse practitioners and PAs. And that is to enlist their help in taking call. And especially on the weekends, the, the APPs are perfectly suited to handle sort of the routine things that happen on call, like medication refills or appointment cancellations or basic questions that patients call with. And then the physician takes the calls from the hospital or the emergency room and, and handles those sorts of things. And that, that has been a, a great thing for our quality of life on call, but it's also been a good thing for the APPs because they can earn a little extra income in doing so. And so that's just one other example of how you can extend their, their role to help improve things for your practice and your patients. And, and I would say that it, the patients are satisfied with that too, because many of them see the, the APPs, the nurse practitioners or the PA for urgent work and visits anyway. And so if that provider has talked to them on the telephone on the weekend. They'll be the ones seeing them Monday when they need to be worked in. That's just really been a great thing for the practice all the way around. Dr. Bryant, what are some of the ways that an APP can be particularly useful in a clinical setting that maybe is something that we overlook sometimes? There are several things, uh, and some of these are really not financial benefits, but just uh, work balance and, and, and life benefits. Uh, first of all, when we have it, when we brought APPs into our practice, uh, they have a little less schedule pressure. They have openings on their schedule. And so 
many of our patients sort of use them as a walk-in clinic. They have you know, expertise in, uh, you know, otolaryngic allergy and ENT disorders. And that's a lot of what goes into a walk-in clinic, but they have a relationship with our office and our staff and our practice. And so we see that um, oftentimes patients would, would call us uh, when they're sick for acute care visits. And so it sort of expanded that service line because in the past, patients couldn't get in to see the physician and would go to a walk-in clinic. And so I think that's one big benefit. The second one is that in doing so, these patients uh, have a relationship with these APPs and they uh, tend to want to see them. A lot of times they'll, that's their first choice. Can I see the, the nurse practitioner or the PA for this problem? We, we have a, a robust allergy practice. And so one of our nurse practitioners, she stays up uh, with CME and the latest techniques for allergy skin testing and immunotherapy. And so she's really the medical director for our allergy department. And they come to her for uh, protocol issues or changes, or if an allergy patient is there and, and they're sick, uh, she can work them in and see that patient. Also, if you have satellite clinics, we have a satellite clinic where the physicians sort of rotate through, but we have a PA that's always there and she's involved in supervising that nursing staff and can help manage and coordinate staff at that, at that site. And then lastly, I'll say there's a couple models for how you can employ APPs in your clinic. One would be to, uh, you know, have a big, have a schedule and see that schedule in conjunction with your APP. But a second model in our model is that they really have their own schedule. And so uh, really, if I see so many patients in one day, and they see just as many. I've covered twice as many patients as I normally would, but there's been a little less schedule pressure, a little time for us to give the patient, you know, education and things that they need. So the list is almost endless of the advantages they brought into our practice, but other ways that we utilize them, one might ask, do they see only non-surgical patients? But say one of us is in the operating room suite and we've got a patient who's a post-operative patient or a previous, had previous sinus surgery and they're sick and they want to be seen our nurse practitioners and MPs are trained in nasal endoscopy. And if, uh, you know, we're not available and they are, the patient can come in, they can perform nasal endoscopy. They can take photos of what they're seeing for us to review when we get back to the office. They can take cultures for us. And so being able to scope patients when we're not there is very beneficial. So the list just really goes on and on with regard to the things that they're uh, capable of doing well and, uh, and, and helping us out. Are there certain types of practices or practice settings that would benefit more or not benefit at all from APPs? So I really think that all ENT practice types can benefit from having uh, advanced practice providers. And you can use them in a variety of ways. We've already touched on those quite a bit. There is a financial trade-off. You'll need to, to pay them a, you know, a fairly handsome salary, and, and I think we're going to discuss some specifics of that. We've talked about the ways we use them. We're a, a five-physician practice, two locations, and they have added tremendous value to our practice. So the financial trade-off for us has, has been very much in the positive. And we do pay them a, a premium salary, but they also have billing and collections, and that helps su support the financial stability of the practice. APPs function well in an academic setting, in a large single group setting, in a small private practice. They're even beneficial for, for the rapidly disappearing single physician practice, especially in that setting where that, that otolaryngologist needs to be out of the office on occasion to be in the operating room. That advanced practice provider can keep things going during the day. Many use APPs to help with hospital care. 
And especially if you're a, a smaller practice and it's difficult for you to get to the hospital to make rounds, you can empower your APP to, to provide some of that service to hospital patients. We mentioned earlier, they can be trained how to assist you in the operating room. I think they're invaluable in an academic setting. Even when there's a, a, a good crew of residents to round on patients and so forth, there are going to be times in an academic practice where a resident's not available and APP can fill in quite well in that setting. Let's say the resident is in surgery that, that day or in the clinic with an attending, but there's a need for a patient up on the floor, and APP can certainly handle that. So, there again, um, the ways you can plug them in seem to be endless, and, and they add incredible value to, to your practice no matter the setting. What are some of the regulations around supervision of advanced practice providers? Well, they do vary by state. And so before you employ one, it would be a, a very good idea to review your state regulations on that. In, in Tennessee, I can tell you that the, the rules are that, that physicians have to review at least 20% of the charts of the patients that are seen and treated by an APP. Now, in our practice, we've sort of made that standard 100% uh, because we want to know what's going on with our patients, even if they're not seeing us. It, it's a good idea for me to know what's going on with them in case they come in to see me the next time. I've, I have at least some idea of what transpired the last couple of visits. I, I might add that for Medicare, I think that is ubiquitous across the country. And I think for Medicare, with regard to billing, the physician has to be on site to bill under the physician's NPI number. So there's what they call incident to billing. And so if the physician is not there to directly supervise the APP, then the APP can still bill for his or her services, but uh, it would be at a different rate, a different rate from Medicare. So those are all important things to look into if you make the decision to uh, try this type of um, arrangement. Dr. Bryant, to expand a little bit about costs and benefits, what are the financial considerations that one should review before incorporating an APP into a clinical practice? Well, I think a big question would be, well, not a question, but really there's a, there's a cost to training an APP. And we're, uh, we're highly specialized physicians, and so there's not a track where uh, nurse practitioners or PAs are being trained specifically in otolaryngology. So in this you happen to come across an APP that's uh, had experience in our field, you're probably looking at a training phase. And so uh, in the training phase, there's typically lots of shadowing and watching, you know, learning the head and neck examination, learning the types of uh, patients that present to us and our treatment protocols and those sorts of things, training them on the procedural type things and supervision with that as well. So uh, there's going to be a cost to training the, and it's, and it's quite lengthy. I think it can take, you know, six months, 12 months, even 18 months to bring them up to speed where you're really comfortable, where they're seeing their own full schedule. Uh, and so uh, you can't really expect right away from a financials perspective that, that APP, that they would uh, have enough collections um, through clinic visits to really cover their salary. And so that's something to consider. There may be a, a price up front to gain the benefit down the road. As it relates to salary structure, you know, some practices uh, go with straight salaries. Some will have a base salary and add on production bonus. I think we tend to like that the latter model there. We think that if we, much like physicians, if there's some incentive to be busy and see patients and to do good work, then it can be a win-win for the, for the APP and for the practice. 
I will say, as I alluded to earlier, the um, Ascent Group, the Administrative Support Community for ENT Physicians, they've got an annual salary survey that comes out each year. I think it's $150, and you can uh, purchase that and look at typical salaries based on region and based on years of experience. Great. Well, let's move on to our last topic, which is clinical workflow. Um, Of course, scribes and APPs play into that significantly, as we've already discussed some, but there are probably several other factors that can both improve clinical workflow and physician and staff satisfaction. Dr. Fortune, can you give us a broad overview of some of these quote-unquote hacks? Sure. I'm going to circle back to what I told you about that very bad decision I made in high school to drop my typing class. And so one of the hacks that I really take full advantage of in our electronic record is is using templates or macros or dot phrases, um, anything that, that can save you time or make you more efficient or make you a better typist like me. Um, is a win-win for your electronic record documentation. Another um, thing that that we work on often is the, the process from the time the patient walks in the door to when they walk out. We really try to do everything we can to, to make their transition into the office from filling out the paperwork and getting back from the waiting room to their triage to their waiting time for the physician. We, we try to make all those steps as painless for the patient as possible, and, and we really focus on trying to minimize their wait time. Patients really don't like sitting and waiting on physicians. It's, it's sort of the dirty joke out there about going to the doctor's office. And oftentimes we get compliments on our, our process um, because we work hard on it. But it doesn't happen by itself. You have to take time out of your practice to make sure your practice is running efficiently. Some other ways that, that you can do this is, is how you organize your office and your clinic room setup. Ours is not perfect, but we're organized into pods. And so each provider works out of a pod of, of rooms. We have a few now microscope rooms. We found that that was a bit of a bottleneck for us. Everyone needed the microscope at the same time. So we ended up having to invest in equipping two more microscope rooms and getting some microscopes. And that, that has improved our efficiency tremendously because on, on any given day, we have so many providers and, and so, such a, a high uh, traffic volume of audiology patients that, that cleaning wax and doing those microscopic exams was a real bottleneck for us. And so taking the, the resources to invest in that improved our efficiency tremendously. Dr. Bryant mentioned training the APPs to clean cerumen. We have a few key employees that we trust a lot, and we've trained um, some of that nursing staff that's that's been with us a long time and seen us do this over and over to clean cerumen. And, and the way we did that was to get a, a Zeiss microscope that had a teaching arm. So much like you would have at an academic institution when you're teaching residents, we do the same thing with a couple of key nursing uh, employees. We trained all our nurses, whether they're LPNs or RNs or whatever, to do tympanograms and OEEs for us. And so that way we don't tie up the audiologist doing simple hearing screens or, or eustachian tube assessments, and that, that improves our efficiency tremendously. We have cross-trained our nurses to do pre-procedure, inter-procedure, and post-procedure care on the days that we're doing 
minimally invasive or office-based rhinology procedures or eustachian tube dilations or even just basic sort of garden variety otolaryngology procedures like lower lip biopsies and, and skin excisions and so forth. And so those nurses provide the care to the patient before the procedure happens. They're there with us, assisting us during the procedure, and then they, they get the patient ready to, to leave the office after the procedure is completed. They maintain and order instrumentation and supplies for us, and, and you'll need if you want to do this, it, it really will save you a lot of time and effort, but it will take some time to invest in their, in their skills in that regard. We have our nurses, both allergy nurses and clinic nurses, trained to do pulmonary function testing, and that, that has... Um, improved our efficiency as well. Many of our nurses know how to do Dix-Hall pike testing and perform Epley maneuvers. I might mention that the APPs see a lot of the, the benign positional vertigo in our practice, and they are extremely skilled, many times more skilled than the physicians are in, in performing Epley maneuvers. We invest a lot in patient education, and there's a variety of ways that we do this, and it's really helped our efficiency. We have a, a large series of, of patient printouts, patient education. Um, we call them PIFs, patient information forms. And they educate patients on risks and benefits of surgery or common conditions. Uh, we have one that's really extensive for Meniere syndrome with salt diet and so forth. And that has um, that's improved our efficiency quite significantly. We have standard pamphlets that, that come from our instrumentation providers and so forth, and those are useful as well. For hiring, we've found over time in our 22 years of experience that we really prefer to hire a higher level of nurse, either an LPN at minimum, or we really prefer RNs when we can get them. They do command a higher salary than, say, a medical assistant, but if you pay them well and you train them well, you can prevent turnover. And I'm, I'm just going to tell you, it doesn't matter what practice setting you're in. Turnover is a killer. Turnover is incredibly disruptive. Turnover means you've got to go all the way back to the beginning, take time out to train a new employee, let alone the, the cost of searching for one, finding one, hiring one. If you can maintain and retain your staff, boy, it really is a significant benefit to your practice, no matter if you're in academics, a large private practice, or a small private practice like we are. And then, as I've mentioned, you know, just to kind of summarize, our, our nurses really perform all roles in our office other than what the physician or the APPs perform. And the nurses are able to develop some relationships with the patients too. And this is important when the patient calls back with a question or a need. And we found that, that if we are able to maintain and retain our staff and the patients know to call and ask for Lindsay or, or Carrie, uh, it really makes a difference in, in the satisfaction the patients have when they interact with our practice. Kind of along the same lines, um, how does having the same clinic and or OR team every day help with clinical flow? Is that a big factor that you found in your practice? It really uh, makes a significant difference in how your, how your day goes. The clinic nurses know, you know what to hand me every time, whether I'm doing an, an exam or a procedure. And, and, you know, little, little bits of efficiency add up to a lot by the time you're at the end of the day. The, the converse of that equation is that if you 
have someone that you don't work with and it's a different person every time and they don't know your routine, well, you start adding up, you know, the, the time for them to step out of the room, to grab something, to come back, you know, by, by the end of the day, then you've added a lot of extra time to your day and you've delayed the, the patient's care in your office. And so it's, it's really, really important, no matter whether you're in the clinic or in the operating room, to have the same personnel or at least some people that, that know something about what you're doing. From a physician standpoint, uh, Dr. Bryant, have you found any specific workflow hacks that have been personally helpful in organizing your day in a way that effectively and efficiently accomplishes patient care and completes your clinical responsibilities? For sure. And, and first of all, I'll reiterate, the, the, the biggest advantage for me compared to pre-EMR days is the fact that I can finish my notes at, at the point of care. And this is a really complex patient, or maybe I'm a little bit behind, but most of my notes are done at the point of care. The surgery order is done. Everything's uh, tucked in to go to the scheduler, to go over wherever that patient needs to be next to the allergy department to be scheduled. But um, uh, to check that one off, that that box off is, is a big one for me because at the end of my day, I don't have to spend you know 30 or 60 or 90 minutes of, of medical records documentation. I think you document better. It's more fresh on your mind if you can do it at the point of care. And then lastly, I'll say that, um, like Dr. Fortune said, little small efficiencies really add up throughout the day. And this, you know, kind of, uh, you know, small examples of if you've got a receptionist up front that is having to get up to copy a patient's insurance card and driver's license, and if they've got to go, you know, five feet or eight feet or not very far, but if they get up every time if you add up the amount of time they're getting up to copy something, if you have a little scanner right there at their workstation, it can really speed up efficiencies. And um, we've looked over the years, we've really worked at trying to identify the bottlenecks in our practice. And if it's uh, patients filling out new patient paperwork, maybe we'll get the key demographic information in, bring them on back and let them fill out some other paperwork while they're waiting for the provider. Years ago, we were like, we found that uh, at the beginning of the afternoon clinic, you know, we'd have three providers waiting, but only one of us had a patient to see. And we realized that uh, we had several receptionists, but everybody had to go through the check-in person. And there was a bottleneck right there. So we, we made sure that our receptionists were all check-in inpatients. So just little small efficiencies over time, you really add up to improve workflow over your day. Now, we discussed um, some uh, techniques for improving workflow efficiency related to medical records. Um, we did already cover dot phrases and templates, but are there any other tricks you all have up your sleeve for improving efficiency related to medical records? I would add that, that using symptom scores has made a big difference for me. I, I use a lot of them. I use the SNOT score, the total nasal symptom score. I'm trying to get better at using the nose score. We use the ETDQ7. We, we've talked about uh, implementing one of the reflux scores. We use an ACT score because we treat so much asthma. And I, for me, this really helps focus the, the triage, the history that the nurses take. But it, it also keeps me focused on what the patient's chief complaint is. Because a lot of times in an ENT practice, I know all of you have seen this before, just like I see it every day. A patient comes in and you start asking them why they're there. And suddenly it went from their sleep apnea to their hearing loss, to their allergies, to their nose is stuffy. And before you know it, you, you've got a very large agenda. 
And so I, I find that those symptom scores really help me prioritize what's what's bothering the patient most. And then I explain to them, you know, we're going to be able to address one or two really important issues for you today. And these other things we're going to we're going to keep on our agenda. And the next time you come in, we're going to focus on those. And that's 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 made a big difference for me. So as with our prior episode together, one of the driving factors in discussing these topics is the challenge that we have in obtaining useful and practical information on these very important issues. Um, Do you all have any resources uh, that you would recommend for our listeners who want to learn more and potentially implement some of these tips that you have provided today within their own practices? Uh, Dr. Bryan has highlighted multiple times the Ascent Organization administrative support community for ENT. And this is an organization that caters to to a practice of any type. So Ascent has resources for academic practice, for large group practice, for mid-sized practices like us, and even for the mom and pop shop. And so that's a, it's a very valuable organization. Uh, the membership cost is, is pretty minimal and they have at least a couple of meetings a year and many online resources for you. So that's a great thing to, to look at, to take advantage of. Another one to take advantage of often is your malpractice carrier. Part of what we pay for in that malpractice coverage is business administration uh, advice, both legal and just on, on day-to-day operations and efficiencies. And so you could, you could check that out. Coding courses are, are a good place to get some good information if you're having challenges with, with coding issues. And Karen Zupko offers an ENT-focused uh, coding course that's, that's very useful and recommended by the Academy. Those would be the first places that I would look for answers if I was, um, if I was in need. Also consider a colleague. Go visit a colleague that's using APPs. It's sometimes helpful just to do a site visit, whether you're researching a new EMR or which EMR to pick or whether to, to try a model with an APP. You can, um, you can arrange to go visit an office where these things are, are in place. It's just often helpful to see someone else's workflow and how they implement their APPs and you can really learn a lot <clears throat> with, a, with a visit. Well, Dr. Fortune and Dr. Bryant, thank you so much for being on our show. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, and I think we've gleaned some knowledge from your extensive experience in this topic. Well, folks, that about wraps up our episode of ENT in a Nutshell. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.